Good morning. Good to have you here this Sunday morning for our worship services. We're going to do one right now at 9.30, and then we're going to do a second one at 10.30. Let me just mention a couple announcements before we get into our Bible study, and our first Bible study is going to be in Matthew chapter 11, and uh, if you have those notes, you want to pull those out so you can join me as we go through that passage, and what we're talking about in Matthew chapter 11 is resting in Jesus Christ. And then in the second session, we're going to be answering the question that Jesus asked the disciples, why are you so fearful? That'll be for Mark chapter 4. Also in the second session, what we're going to do is hasten up in the service, the Pastor Tony's children's presentation will be done earlier than normal, so you want to get the kids ready right towards the very beginning for that lesson, and then we'll have a video about Memorial Day, and then we'll get into our Bible study as well. Um, We do have several who are graduating, and what we want to do is acknowledge those who have graduated from high school and college that people have told us about and informed us about as far as those within our church family. And so there will be a listing of names that will be posted between these two different services so that those of you who would like to drop cards of congratulations, you'll have that information to be able to work with. Um, Just to bring you up to speed on a couple things before we get into Bible study, the deacons are hoping to get together ASAP to discuss the uh, opening up of our services on a face-to-face basis and what that will look like, what precautions that we'll take for that, what ministries, how far that will spread as far as initially opening up. And so we're anxious to get into that, uh, that opportunity, but we don't want to be too hasty lest we jeopardize individuals. And so we're trying to be cautious. And at the same time, we are very anxious to get back to seeing people here in the auditorium and being able to uh, have that, t- that form of fellowship. Those of you who in the meantime are very, very anxious to get together again, let me encourage you, you can get together in your homes and then live stream together and uh, take advantage of that. Do that instead of sitting back and saying, you know, why can't we get together? Get Take the opportunity. Invite somebody over into your home. Use this as an opportunity of outreach and evangelism. Invite somebody to join you from your family, your relatives, a neighbor. Where you're comfortable in your home setting and they're comfortable coming in, you can use this as a tool for the Lord in sharing the gospel. Um, we also wanted to just bring you up to speed on the food drive. We did another one of those food box giveaways on Friday night in the rain. And I appreciate so much those who came and helped out. And we had good weather, bad weather, rain, then it was drizzle, then it wasn't anything. Just a whole gamut of the weather. But uh, we started, and we were going to run from 4 o'clock to 6.30. We were out of all 500 boxes of food by 5.15. And so thank you to those who worked. Thank you to the several of you who gave specifically for those purchases of those boxes. Over the last month, we've given over, uh, over uh, 100 boxes of food out to different people in the community, and we hope, we pray, that with the gospel literature that went along with it, which are packets that were prepared, uh, that gave children's uh, tracks as well as Hispanic material as well as an English gospel presentation. We're going to pray that the Lord would use that. So you join us as well. And in our phone calling, we're trying to call through everybody last week, this week, and catch up. And if you didn't get a call, some of you need to empty your voice mailboxes. We can't get through to you. But um, if you, uh, if if during those calls that we've been having in conversations, it is really exciting how many are sh- are saying they've had opportunities to share the gospel. And so we thank the Lord for that. Continue that good effort as you use this occasion to share the gospel. We have some other announcements and other other things that we'll mention in a few moments, but let's get started into a Bible study. We are headed into Matthew chapter 11 for this morning's Bible study. And what we're talking about, Jesus saying, come unto me and I will give you rest. And so let's get into that study this morning together. Matthew chapter 11, we're going to be looking at verses 20 down through verse 30. And so if you're joining me during that, that period of passage, let's get started on that text. What happens here is Jesus is going to emphasize the idea of having the right access. We all know what that's like. It's called passwords. I was hearing from a, a fellow preacher who was sharing how he had just gotten back from a trip where he was out preaching, got back to his office the next day, and he opened up his computer and he tried to punch into his computer and he couldn't get in. And all of a sudden he kept on coming up saying, wrong access wrong access and that he was given the wrong password. And then he got information from his secretary who, who came walking at that point that a certain fellow who he had never met before, didn't know the, the name, that that fellow was trying to reach him and talk to him about 
exchanging computers accidentally at the airport. They had similar computers. They walked away from the uh, check station and they had grabbed and not noticed until the next day. And no wonder he couldn't get onto the computer. He didn't have the right access because it wasn't his computer. And without knowing the right password, there was no way to get in to even get more information about that gentleman. The same thing is true with our computers. You run into it, I run into it, that if we don't type in specifically the right password, all of a sudden we can't get in. I was given some information this weekend to go online and get some, some data and see a, see a site that was talking about reopening for churches and all the different um, recommendations. And they, in the password to get into that, that group setting, there was you know, the different numerals, the different alphabet, and the lowercase and the higher case. And I was so careful. But I tell you, with bifocals, it's so tough. And I couldn't tell the difference between the L and, an, and the 1 for initially, initially typing in. And as a result, I kept on getting it wrong, 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 until somebody else pointed out that that is the different numeral than what I thought it was the letter L. And so there was, without the right password, can be off just so little, just one figure and a figure of 12, and I couldn't get in. You and I need the right password. My age, we've got too many passwords. We forget what passwords we have. We have them for different devices. You young people, you are just so spectacular in handling these devices, but you too know without the right password, you can't move forward. That's kind of what Jesus is saying in this text. Jesus is talking to a group of people and saying, you need me. I am your password to a whole variety of different blessings. And so he's preaching, going along, and in Matthew chapter 11, he's going to talk about the importance of having him in our lives. In fact, let's, let's break this down. He is going to, in the first section, say to those individuals that you need me, seen in his call to the fellow countrymen to repent. Follow along as I read, starting with verse 20. Then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. Woe unto you, Chorazin! Woe unto you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, which are exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in you have been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Let's pause right there. Let's set our scene. Let's see what Jesus is pointing out. He's preaching along the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, he is in the region of Galilee, and he's ministering, as you can see in the map, where he's in those cities that are on the northern rim of the sea. Well, the, some are separated by just two miles, others by 20 miles. And he's going around and about, and the cities that he's talking about as he's preaching are the same cities that earlier in the chapter he had sent his disciples out preaching into this region. In chapter 10, that is. And in that whole setting that he said, go out. And when he sent his disciples, he sent them with the ability to do miracles, which they did. And so that would confirm that they are coming from God to these individuals. And so Jesus is there. He's preaching now. And they've wrapped up their tour of that region and preaching the gospel. And he's coming to those areas where those people now had, as he's reflecting back, they had scorned him. They had laughed at him when he had gone into this region and preached, especially in Capernaum. Capernaum is a city where Jesus uh, Christ had already done many of his miracles. In this section alone, of the ten miracles that occur in these couple chapters, five of them were done in that city. And so they've gotten a lot of information about Christ. They've seen him working. And so they know his message. They know his miracle power. And yet they laugh at him. They scorn him. And he even makes a comment where he says, you were exalted, if you saw that, in verse 23, exalted unto heaven. There's two possibilities by interpreters. Is he talking about they exalted themselves in pride, like Satan did in the Garden of Eden, Eden exalted himself to heaven? Or is he saying that they are exalted unto heaven in the sense that they are seeing heavenly works like no other region, no other city at that time by the very presence of Jesus Christ doing so many miracles at that time? 
Taking that latter interpretation, no wonder they are being condemned. To whom much is given, much is required. And here in this case, they've been given a lot of information. They're seeing the very Son of God. They're present with Him, proclaiming His message, and they have refused, they have rejected, they have laughed at Him, they have mocked Him, they have put Him to scorn. And so He calls unto them to repent. They haven't. And He makes this comment, Now, because at the end of verse 20, they repented not. Now, in his comments that he makes about them, he says, whoa. Wherever you read that W-O-O-E, understand that is not just like, whoa, that's that's kind of bad. No, whoa is really bad. It's a a large portion of judgment. It's a a figure of speech that is used with with great intensity of the judgment that's going to come against them. We see that in the book of Revelation. We see it here. One of the few times that he's used that term in his, uh, in his earthly uh, ministry. He tells them that judgment day is coming. And that as the judgment day, they're going to end up in hell. And he makes that very clear in verse 23 in that idea that you'll be brought down to hell. And so he makes another comment. He warns them, and he's talking to them, that their punishment will be more severe than that which happened to Tyre and Sidon, Sodom, Gomorrah. Those are all cities that in Old Testament era, they were deeply, strongly condemned by the prophets. And you know Sodom and Gomorrah, the story in Genesis. And so these cities were known for their cruelty, their wickedness, and they were legendary to the Jews for being cities that were very, very corrupt. Tyre and Sidon, uh, Gentile cities that the Jews said deserved to be destroyed. And now he's saying those cities will be better off in judgment than you Jewish cities. That would have shocked his audience. The audience that thinks because we're Jews, we are God's chosen people, which by nation and nationality they are, but they're all of a sudden being confronted by the Messiah saying that Sodom and Gomorrah will fare better off in judgment day than you will. And so that just would have deeply stirred them. And if they were wanting to be angry against Christ, this could have increased their angst or caught their attention to cause them to reconsider their position with Jesus. And so he's making these statements that are very, very uh, heightened statements, intense statements to these people. Now, if you and I take and just dissect what he said to them, here's some facts that we learn. What we learn from Jesus is that just seeing miracles, just experiencing heaven phenomena, that doesn't all of a sudden mean somebody's faith is going to grow. Oh, if I could see somebody from the dead, then I'll believe. Oh, if I would just see God do a miracle in my life, then I would have great faith. No, these people had great miracles. They had a lot of dramatic instances happen. And miracles and dramatic instances in themselves do not produce faith. It all goes back to the heart. Isn't that what he taught in the parable of the seed and the sower? That it's all about your heart. Somebody's heart, if they are in tune and wanting to know the Lord, well, they'll respond to the miracles and they will listen. Whereas somebody who doesn't have any desire for spiritual things, they're very arrogant, proud. If they're all self-satisfied or if they're self-made individuals and it's all about themselves, no matter what miracles take place, they aren't going to respond. It's all about the heart issue. And so he makes it very clear that for those who would go about and say, well, if we have miracles, if we have miracles, people will believe. People will believe based upon their heart attitude. And so we want to make this other comment that you and I should remember. There is a judgment day. There is going to be a judgment day. He's talking about the judgment that we later learn is going to be what we call the great white throne judgment. That according to Revelations, the last couple chapters, that all people, rich, poor, great, humble, they're all going to stand before God, those who are lost of all ages, and they're going to have to give account before him, and they are going to experience the lake of fire afterwards. There's a judgment day. And so he makes it very clear. He also makes it clear in this text there is a real place called hell. That it's not a figment. It's not something that is uh, um, here on earth that is disappointing and, and something that is a terrible life experience. There is a real place in God's plan called hell. That place is a place of punishment not made for mankind, but made for Satan and his followers And so God made that place as a final jail, imprisonment for Satan. However, 
those who reject Jesus Christ will end up in there because of that fact that they would not have faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, they are condemned and the wrath of God will abide upon them, which it already does until we repent. And so there's this real place that Jesus further on in other texts will talk about and describe as where the worm dieth not, the fire is not quenched, there is pain, there is agony. So you and I look at this text as believers... And we look and say, it is important for us to do what Jesus did in this text. Call people to repent so they avoid that place of judgment. That's why during this time, you can still be giving out the word of God. You can still be giving out literature, using opportunities to warn friends, relatives, neighbors, classmates, that if they, if they don't repent, they will end up in this place of judgment that he tells the Jewish people who consider themselves the children of God, he's telling them they could end up there if they don't repent and have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He also suggests in this passage there are degrees in hell. I don't know how that works. I just know that that's what he states. That it's going to be more tolerable for the Tyre, Tyre and Sidon and Sodom than for the Jews who had so much more revelation. Who had Jesus Christ present. He's going to say these people from the ancient lands of our cities of Tyre and Sidon, they will not suffer as much in hell as the Jews who had so much more information and hardened their hearts. He makes the comment uh, in, this, in this setting that family heritage does not guarantee getting into heaven. The Jewish people. Capernaum, Bethsaida, Chorazin. We're going to heaven because we're Jews. No, he's making it clear. You can be brought down to hell if you don't accept me as your Savior. If you reject me. God's son, God's messenger, God's Messiah. And so you and I, by application, we have to learn that just because we're Americans doesn't mean we're going to get into heaven. Just because we're from a historically Christian nation does not mean that we're going to get into heaven. Just because you grew up in a Christian home, your parents are saved, you go to church where they teach the Bible, you've memorized lots of verses in Calvary clubs and TNT, that doesn't mean you're automatically getting into heaven. You and I need to have a personal relationship with Christ that starts by repenting of our sins and asking him to be our savior, recognizing that it is all of him that provides us eternal life and salvation. So you and I make these conclusions that the response to Jesus Christ is what is critical as far as our destiny in the next life. You reject Christ in this life, you'll be rejected by the Father in the next life. And so it's very important. Now this one challenges and scares me a lot. This last thought. Think this through. Those exposed to much truth can easily become the most hard-hearted towards Christ. Think that through. These Jewish people had heard for all their lives. They had heard about a coming Messiah. They had the scriptures. And when he all of a sudden they're exposed and challenged to more truth by Jesus Christ in the flesh, they become more hard-hearted than Tyre and Sidon and Sodom and Gomorrah. That's scary. That is scary that some who grow up in homes where the parents are believers where they are exposed to the Word of God, Sunday school after Sunday school, week after week in services, through teen programs, through kids' programs, through youth ministries, those individuals, if we're not careful, if you're not careful, if we're not prayerful, if you're not prayerful, you can easily, all of a sudden, become like these individuals and just take it for granted and become hard-hearted towards Jesus Christ and just make him a thing to do once in a while but not have a relationship. And he is calling to folk who are exposed to truth time and again saying, listen, you need to repent. You need to repent. Not just learn up here the facts of Messiah and the miracles of Christ and what he can do. You need to ask him to be your personal savior. He brings us to this conclusion. You and I need to make sure we have Jesus Christ as our Savior to avoid hell. It is critical. When I was in junior high, I remember that to move from classroom to classroom, you could do it during, during school session, but you needed a pass hall. 
And the hallway pass, you needed that. And if you were caught in the hallways without a hallway pass, the immediate uh, consequence was you had to go down to the principal's office, whose name was Ira T. Barron. Remember that the name itself brings brings a little bit of shiver into my into my spirit and soul because he was just a really really scary dude, and you had to go to his office and you could get some form of detention. And based upon how many times you were exposed to this, your detention could get worse. Now I'm not saying Jesus is merely just a, a hallway pass, but in that same way. He is, in that sense, a hallway pass to avoid getting sent to a place of eternal detention. You need Christ. You have to call upon him. That's what he told these people. But then he all of a sudden points out the importance of having Christ by his call to his heavenly father in prayer. Watch what he does. Breaks out in prayer right after that. At that time, verse 25, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father. And no man knows the Son but the Father. Neither knows any man the Father save the Son. And he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Oh, for some, that's a confusing text. But let's keep it in its context, and I think it makes perfect sense to you as you go through it with me. What he's doing is all of a sudden he breaks out in prayer. And what's interesting is the, immediately he is thanking the Father and giving praise right at this moment when all of a sudden he's in a negative setting where people are rejecting him, he breaks out in praise. He responds in thanksgiving even though he wants more people to repent. Yep, you and me. We can all of a sudden become saddened. We can become bothered by those who reject and forget the many who accept. I'll give you an illustration. On Friday evening when we gave the food uh, items out, a lot of people, just everybody who seemed to come through was very appreciative, very grateful. We ran out of boxes. And afterwards... There was a couple of us who stayed just to let people know who came. And there weren't that many, but there were some who drove into the driveway. And we would let them know, sorry, all 500 boxes are already given away. And uh, of all those people, they were still very kind except for two. There was two individuals. One got mad at Pastor Tony. One got mad at me. And they relayed how they were frustrated that we didn't have a box for them. And they were upset by that. (laughs) You were getting a free box anyway. We didn't owe it to them. But I'll tell you what happened. Those two responses got us caught up for a couple minutes with the idea, how could they be that cruel for getting something that's free that they would say certain things that they said? When we had all these hundreds of other people who were so grateful, it is so easy to all of a sudden focus on those two that were negative. It is so easy to focus in on all the on uh, on those who don't agree or don't don't uh, get involved with you or don't come, and we forget about all the blessings that we do have, all the blessings of those who do come, those who do get involved, those who do uh, are appreciative, and so Jesus is showing us that lesson that you and I need to practice gratefulness for the blessings we have, not focusing on what we don't have, but be grateful for what we do have. Here, let's take a little bit further. He is revealing to us that he and the Father are extremely close. He uses the phrase Father, we mentioned this a couple weeks ago, that was not a normal term in prayer that was used by the Jews. Usually they would use more formal titles. This was a more intimate title. So he's praying to the Father, but this time, instead of even saying our Father, which was communal aspect, he says my Father. My Father. Making it very clear, he was really close to the Father in an extremely unique situation, which is very, very personal, as well as, here's another indication of that Trinity aspect. That he and the Father working together in tandem, two different individuals, and yet they are tied and tied together as 
part of that Godhead Trinity. That's a whole nother discussion. Point is, Jesus and the Father are very close, which he builds upon and makes further comments. He says, Father, I am thankful that you hid these things from the wise and prudent. Now, don't be mistaken. This is not a slam against education. This is not a criticism of getting, getting a diploma, which, by the way, some have preached. Some of you will go back into, into historical messages. Some have decried education and educators and going to schools of advanced degrees. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying in this passage is he's talking against those who feel that they are the wise and the prudent. The arrogant individuals. The Jews who consider themselves above the teachings of Jesus, more educated than Jesus and his followers. In particular, we see that where he where he's make, later on makes the criticism against the Jewish teachers, the Pharisees, the scribes, and those individuals. Those who consider themselves to be wise. You may want to mark that right in your Bible so that when you read this, you don't get confused and say, wait a minute, he's telling us that we should stay ignorant. That's not what he's saying at all. He is not decrying education or, or learning or getting a trade. Rather, pride is what he's talking about. And he says, I am so glad that you revealed it unto those who many people would ignore, the babes. Many in Jewish society would consider insignificant. And that's you and me. That Jesus Christ would reveal to us the word of God. When we, here we are, we're the weak, we're not the mighty. We're the lowly, we are, not the, we are not the established authorities. And he's saying, I am so glad that you revealed the word. I'm glad for the ones who have responded to what you have revealed to them, how you have been working in their hearts. And I am so grateful that you did that, Father. Thank you, thank you for the Peter and the James and the John. Thank you for the ladies who are following. Thank you for the crowds of disciples that are coming from the woodwork of, of society, and they're coming, and even the sinners and the publicans, thank you, thank you, thank you, Father, for, for working in their hearts, revealing, and at the same time, I understand that you hid, that is, those who are proud and arrogant, they are hardening their own hearts against you. Thank you for your work of the Spirit that has been happening. But his point in this prayer is this, and if you look at verse 27, it is clear, the way to know the Father is through Jesus Christ. To get to know God is looking at the Son. The Son reveals, this is God's plan, that the Son speaks of the Father. I was, I was going to remind you about that story right around 1800s, that that individual in North Carolina by Little Meadow Creek, the gentleman by the name of Conrad Reed, he found this rock that he for three years used as a door, uh, a door jam there at his cabin where his family was living until all of a sudden a gemologist came through the area. When the gemologist came through, he examined the doorstop and found out that it was the largest piece of gold found on, uh, in North America up to that time and even to this day here east of the Rockies. And all of a sudden this family that was living in this rural area, they had this rock that was worth $3,000 as the gemologist explained. That would be like $80,000 in today's money. It was a great find for them. And so here all of a sudden they, they didn't know what they had until it was revealed by the expert, the gemologist. Jesus Christ is our spiritual expert. He comes, he reveals the Father. You and I need him so we can get to know the Father, our creator, our designer, the one who has a plan for our lives, the one who, who, who brings and allows different events in our lives, who is in total control. We need Jesus Christ so that he can explain the Father to us so we can learn more and more truth about the spiritual realm he is our instructor. He is our guide. He is the one who gives us direction. We need Jesus Christ. So we see that Jesus is mentioning in this text that we need him to get to know the Father, to not end up in hell, but we also need him to enjoy this life to the fullest. That's where he goes on a little bit further. And we see that explained in this third aspect, his call to his followers. His call to his followers to rest in him. Watch where he says right after this. Verse 28. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
Whew, what a loaded passage. We know that God's word tells us in multiple places, God is willing to assist us, to help us. Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, I am your God. I will strengthen, yea, I will help you. I will uphold you with my right hand of righteousness. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. We know they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall not be weary they shall run, they shall walk, not faint. We know that he says to Paul, when Paul is saying that this flesh, uh, this infirmity in the flesh, this ailment, he responds, my grace is sufficient for my strength is made perfect in weakness. We read in Hebrews, we have a great high priest who is touched by infirmities that we may obtain mercy and help in time of need. We know that the word says if we lack wisdom, God is willing to give us the wisdom that we need. We know that he is with us always. Multiple verses, multiple texts. This is just a, a skimming of the surface of those many promises where God is willing to help and assist us. Well, here is another one in Matthew chapter 11. By the way, this promise of Matthew 11, I will give you rest. Matthew is the only one who records it. So this promise is unique in the Gospel of Matthew. So we want to keep it and study it within the context of what he's talking about. But the emphasis being in this context is we need Jesus Christ. We need Jesus Christ. We need him to avoid being damned like Chorazin, Bethsaida, and uh, uh, Capernaum. We need Jesus Christ in order to get to know the Father. We need Jesus Christ to experience a fullness of this life, the idea of the rest, which we'll explain. His point is, you need me. The reason that I say that this is the, this is the emphasis is the way that it's listed out or it's, it's worded out in the original language. I, me alone, come unto me, and I, I, I will give you rest. His point is, you aren't going to find this rest refreshment, this peace, this joy. You're not going to find it in being busy, doing good things, being busy, you know, raising the garden, being busy in, in um, doing fun stuff. It, it's not going to be found in some religious system. It's not going to be found in food, in spending money, in Hershey Park. What he's talking about, the real spiritual rest in this passage, which is a real blessing for all, he's saying it's not going to be found in the government by turning to them and saying, help us out. It's not going to be found in some hobby, in some job that, that you love your job. Maybe you're like me. You just love doing what, what God has given you to do and assigned you to do. And, and you could spend a lot of time doing it because you love the job. Listen, what he is saying, a fullness of life, isn't found in those things. It's found in Jesus Christ, in having a relationship and fellowship with Jesus Christ. I, emphatically, I will give you a rest. And he's talking to a multiple group of people. Every one of the, every one of the pronouns here and the idea of the verbs are all with this plural sense. You all come unto me. Uh, and I will give you all the rest. And so it's very emphatic through here that there are multiple peoples that he's talking to. Those who are laboring, the word for the laboring is you are toiling to the point of exhaustion. Those who are heavy burden, it's the idea that you are carrying, you have been and continue to carry in the verbiage of it, you have been and continue to carry a huge wagon load of weight that is just bearing you down. And so talking to all these people, question is, who is he referring to? There's several possibilities. Yeah, what he's talking to, the people that he's saying, you who are toiling, you who are heavy laden, he could be talking to those who are burdened down with religious activity. Those individuals that the Jews have come and told them, you have to keep this law and this law and this law. Matthew 23, he condemns those, who, those leaders who put so many rules upon the individuals that they themselves didn't keep. But it's the idea that this could be people who are busy, the people in that region of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, you who are trying to keep all these standards and think you're so good, but you never have rest from keeping all those rules and regulations that, quite frankly, they become overbearing at times. Could be talking to them. You could be talking to modern-day religionists who are fearful that they may miss something or not please their church or their, or their religious leader. 
and all of a sudden, you know, be damned. And, and they feel overwhelmed, overburdened by all the regulations that their religion is giving them. He could be talking about borderline disciples. Remember, Jesus had a lot of people following him, some who later on they will leave. Should we or should we follow Jesus? This is, this is just getting so, you know, we, ha- we have to choose, we have to choose. There's pressure here and there's pressure there. He could be talking about people who are carrying loads of guilt. Guilt over what they've done in the past for their attitude or their anger or their lust or their thievery or some criminal activity. Could be talking to those publicans and sinners. Could be talking to you and me. Individuals who who, uh, look back and say, oh my, I wish I could undo what I had done. People oftentimes carry these loads of guilt. He could be talking about people who are wearied by the busyness of life. Then all of a sudden the work and the, the family and the schoolwork and all the assignments and all the pressures of trying to keep things. And all of a sudden, you know, it's been busy, busy, busy taking care of the family. And all of a sudden you're now the teacher as well. And you feel like you are wearied. You are overburdened. He could be talking to the individuals who are working hard, looking for some peace, some satisfaction, some fulfillment somewhere. In work, in shopping, in food, in drink, in drugs, in, in whatever. Finding it, some would find it in sports and give their whole life to sports to find some form of peace. And all of a sudden, here we have no sports. He's talking to individuals who could just plain be wore out by the problems that they face, the pressures that they have, the financial burdens, the social burdens. Unable to get close to some loved one. They could be, you know, somebody who's got an illness and they're just wore out. They're, they're, they're just exhausted. They're, they feel like they can't take any more. Whoever, whatever, is in this group, wherever you are at, he says to these individuals, he says, I will give you rest if you come unto me. The rest idea, which is repeated twice, has the idea of being refreshed, revived, encouraged. An inner peace and contentment and comfort in the middle of the guilts. In the middle of the busyness of life. Finding some form and some purpose that is better than just making dollars. He's saying, come unto me and I will give you the encouragement and the rest you need as you face trial after trial, problem after problem. Come unto me, you who are trying your best to fulfill all these religious obligations. I will give you the spiritual refreshment you need, the rest that you need, that peace that you are seeking after. And he says to them basically these thoughts. There is a pathway to joy and peace in this life. He is saying to them, you do not find it outside of Jesus Christ. It is not found in pleasure or power or fame or money. I'll share a couple examples in a moment. He is saying that this refreshment is available to any and all, including you and me. He is saying that it is not automatic just because you are standing near him. Just because you claim Christianity. It's not automatic. There's going to be some requirements. In fact, there are three that are given in this text. That he says, if you want to have this type of rest, this type of peace, this type of joy, you've got to do something. And here's what he says you have to do. Number one, he says, I will give you rest if you get close to me. If you get close to Christ. That's the first of the three commands. Come to me where he makes it very clear in verse 28. Begin to come to me and I will give you rest. Clearly he has the idea of begin to believe and associate with Christ. That would be some of that Jewish audience. Very clearly he's talking about all having that closeness to him would be that prayer, would be that time of fellowship with him. It would include that idea of come to me, let me guide you. You follow me, you come, you walk in my steps as a teacher and guide. He says, I will give you peace. I will give you rest. I will give you purpose. I will give you fulfillment. I will give you satisfaction in the life you live. 
there was an individual, young man in his teen years, that years ago he had decided that he was going to follow Jesus Christ. He was still a young man in his early training. He got a job while he was doing some studying and being mentored. Got a job in a pawn shop there in the 1880s. And he wrote his purpose for life and what he would do. And to prepare him himself to serve Jesus Christ, he wrote these words. And these, these were his resolutions. I do promise God that I will rise early every morning to have a few minutes, not less than five, in private prayer. I will endeavor to conduct myself humble and meek and a zealous follower of Jesus Christ. I hereby vow to read no less than four chapters of God's word every day. That young man who made those vows and kept those vows, as his biographers have, have often commented, he grew into being one of God's chief and, and valuable servants of that day. Some of you know him, William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, which at that time was very, very devoted to bringing the gospel to many, many, many thousands of people. And William Booth himself, preaching and teaching the word of God, led hundreds personally to Jesus Christ. Why? Close to Christ. Close to Christ through the word. Close to Christ in his fellowship. Second activity you need to do in order to experience that rest and that refreshment, follow the commands of Christ. He says in this text, he says, Come unto me, all you that labor and heavy burden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. What's that mean? Well, yokes could be worn not only by animals, but in Bible days, people did wear yokes at times to carry water. They could, if they didn't have the large animal, even do some of their home gardening or some of the plowing themselves. So there is a sense, by taking up the yoke, there's a sense of get busy doing something. Get busy. Don't just stand there. You've got to do something. That's part of the irony of Christianity. There's all kinds of irony. Irony in this sense, prophecy class canceled due to unforeseen circumstances. Here's uh, an irony. No, no posting signs on doors and windows, which this sign is posted on a window. There's the irony of nothing written in stone. It's written in stone. There's the irony of the sign always open, but we're closed. There's the irony of your phone out of service. Give us a call. How do you do that if you don't have, if your phone's out of service? Christianity is filled with ironies. Christianity has this one, that to get, you need to give. Christianity has the irony to be happy, according to the uh, Beatitudes, you have to mourn. Christianity's irony to lead, you need to be one who is serving and following others. Christianity has to find rest, in this text, you need to get busy. Get busy doing what? Well, he's talking about that idea where taking a yoke in a Jewish mindset could be because the Jews wrote about the yoke of the law, putting it upon, submitting to the commands of the law. Well, Jesus could be taking that very same inference about yoke and saying, okay, you need to be submissive to what I'm teaching. Now, typically, yokes would be considered to be laborious. They would imply something that is heavy, something that could be hard to do. But he makes it clear, my yoke, my rules, my, my requirements of you. He says, they're easy. Literally, they're beneficial. They're kind. They're useful. They are practical. They are good for you. My burden is something you can do quickly. It's not something that is beyond your ability. So he's saying to you and me that as we follow him, as we come close to him, in order to experience rest and peace and satisfaction and fulfillment, we need to get busy following his commands, doing what he said. We need to follow him and, and, and obey him. This invitation is to all of us. It's to all the individuals who are within the hearing of his voice. And he's assuming that we're going to follow it because it's an imperative to us all. This isn't some suggestion. It is you need to do this. All of you need to do this, including you and me. He is implying very clearly that following him is not a life of total ease or frivolity. Oh, I'm, I'm, I got saved. I got born again. So now I can just sit and do whatever I want to do, and I can live however I want to live. That's not real Christianity. Real Christianity, real discipleship means you must take up your cross. There is a yoke. There is some challenges. There are some difficulties. 
And yet it is not impossible to serve Jesus Christ. Nor is it a life of misery and walking around and saying, I've, I've just lost so much by, by following Jesus Christ. Just the opposite. You will gain so much. You will have that peace, that refreshment, that encouragement by doing the commands of Jesus Christ. He is making it clear that this is good for us, that if we do this, the assurance that, that you and I following him, taking our yoke, doing his commands is something beneficial for us, something good for us, something that is, that is helpful because his commands are not hard. His commands are not harsh. In fact, his commands are not, as he said, grievous, painful. It is not that difficult to follow in believers' baptism. It is not that hard to pray. It is not that impossible to share the gospel. It is not that difficult to submit to the parents. It is not that that hard for you and I to have a right attitude of respect towards government officials. Oh yeah, we're challenged because of us. But he's saying it is not grievous. It is not painful. This is good for us. It is good for us to love our families. It is good for us to train our children. Is it challenging? Yes. Is it impossible? No. It is not something that is painful, but will ultimately bring pleasure to our lives. We need to follow the commands of Jesus Christ. It is not that impossible. Serving the Lord is not a life of drudgery. It is the pathway to real delight in this life. See, there's lots of people. I wanted to mention this. There's lots of people that, that, man, they look elsewhere and they don't find the joy. We mentioned that before. That real joy is found in Christ. Just let me give you a, a couple examples of people in their last few words who rejected Christ. How did they feel? What did they say? Some of these famous characters from history. Voltaire, who was an atheist, part of the French Revolution. I wish I had never been born. Lord Byron, man of pleasure and, and uh, great success. The worm, the canker, and grief are mine alone. Jay Gould, an American millionaire, when dying, he said these words, I suppose that I am the most miserable man on earth. A Lord Beaconsfield, who is a, a very influential politician, he ended up in his last words were this, youth is a mistake, manhood a struggle, old age a regret. Alexander the Great, you've heard of him. He wept in his tent in his last days because there are no more worlds to conquer. If we look for things to satisfy, we end up here. We could end up like, like Rick Chalet, financially successful individual in the 1900s. He was the head of several corporations and retail firms here in America. And in March of that year, he locked the garage door, turned on his automobile, let it run until his life was expired. And he had this note written on the dash. Please forgive me, but the thought of going through the torture of living is just too much to bear. His psychiatrist, who also dealt with a number of business professionals at that time, made this comment. Those individuals who are involved with a business and all the pressure to sustain all the earlier achievements and to keep on being on the cutting edge, he says they're on a treadmill where they can never savor their success because they have to keep working harder to maintain that. Many Christians, he went on, feel the same way. They think that they must keep working harder for the Lord, but they forget to spend time with him and him alone. R.C. Chapman, who was a preacher years ago, he talked about one day as he was going through somebody, he said, how are you doing today, Brother Chapman? He said, fine, but really burdened. What do you mean you're really burdened? And he smiled, he said, I'm burdened with the blessings. And he quoted from Psalms about how God overflows the blessings upon us and burdens us with his joy. You and I can live that way. You and I can experience that if we have that walk with Christ. If we have that fellowship with him. If we are close to him. And if we are conformed to Jesus Christ. Come to Christ. We said first of all. That what you need to do is come to him. And then third of all you need to be conformed to Christ. That is the idea of learn of me. Literally be discipled. It's the same word for discipleship. Be discipled from me or by me. It's the idea of all of a sudden letting Jesus mold you. Letting Jesus conform you. Letting Jesus 
work in you. Now, you know how it was when you went to school? When you had a choice of classes, like some of us, when we went to college, we could choose Professor A or Professor B, and we heard, oh, he re- his tests are harder, so we went over to the other one's class and signed up until there was no more room, and then the leftover students had to go to the harder professor. Well, lest you say, well, wait a minute, Jesus might be the harder professor, he makes these comments. I am meek. I am gentle. I am considerate. I am lowly of heart. I am not a cruel tyrant. I am not an oppressive ruler. I am not insensitive to your needs. I am not like the Herod who only cares about himself. Jesus makes it clear that he is a loving, compassionate leader who wants us to be like him, to conform to him, to be discipled, to walk in his steps. How do we better do that? You need to read. You need to memorize the Word of God. To do that, we need to listen to the Spirit's leading the way Christ did. When the Spirit leads us from one place to another, or in one area of another, we need to purpose to act like Christ. We need to say, I will have the respect for authority the way Jesus did, even authorities that were corrupt in his day, even those who, who were misleading or who were anti-Christian, and still he maintained an attitude of respect. You need to forgive like Christ forgave. You and I need to practice self-control. In fact, that word meek, preos, has the idea of being under control, being gentle, like, like it's used for a horse that is broken from being a bucking bronco to one that would be giving a gentle ride. Practice self-control. Even when pains come, when you're attacked like Jesus on the cross, you need to slow down and become people-centered and relationship-centered like Jesus Christ did. You need to speak words, gracious words. Everybody knows. Even those in Nazareth who didn't like what he spoke, they did recognize gracious words. Loving words came from Jesus Christ. You need to share the gospel like Christ shared the gospel. Be conformed to him. You need to go to him and say, Father, point out areas in my life, my attitude, my speech, where I'm not Christ-like, so I become more like him. Be conformed to Jesus Christ. Listen. You and I need Jesus so we avoid damnation. We need Christ to learn more about the Father. We need Christ so we can enjoy this life to the fullest. We have that rest that he talks about, that refreshment, that peace, that contentment. We need Christ. We are looking forward to the time we can get together and sing. Unfortunately, some of the songs we sing, do they really describe our hearts? Or maybe... Maybe these rewritten titles are more descriptive of our spirits and of our true attitude towards Jesus. Maybe instead of I surrender all, we, we really are acting like I surrender some. Maybe, maybe instead of onward Christian soldiers, it would be more true of you and me, onward Christian spectators. Where he leads me, instead of I will follow, I'll consider it. I hope that's not the way you really are living at this point. Oh, to be like Jesus, or oh, how I love Jesus, uh, I, I like him. Or, or maybe just as I am, or just as I pretend to be. Which one describes you? I love to talk about telling the story, or I love to actually tell the story. Which one? Sweet hour of prayer, or is it sweet minute of prayer? Which one describes you? Let me, let me do your will or have my own way instead of thine own way. Which one is descriptive then? It all based upon the others. Are there showers of blessing or sprinkles? You and I need Christ. We need to stay close to him. We need to come unto him and watch him work in our hearts to give great, 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 great purpose. Father, thank you for this opportunity we had to study this passage Help me and my friends to live it out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.